Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 349, Bar Association. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we explore the morals, meanings, and messages, and at times take a look at the ugly truth regarding Ferengi workers' rights in the 24th century. The, the truths being ugly. I mean, not necessarily the Ferengi being ugly, although well, there was that one leery-eyed guy. There's always a leery-eyed guy. And this week, Bar Association where John and I go on strike, but we realize we have no lines to picket, and technically, we would be our own scabs since we're already recording. So we decided this was a terrible plan. However, we have kept all of our contact information going, so here's how you can get a hold of us. If you'd like to chat with us, please contact us at these subspace frequencies. Mission Log Pod is where you can find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you would like to leave us a voicemail, call us at 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com, and our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. But before we get into Bar Association, it is once again time for the man who sets the highest bar for Mission Log Trivia, John Champion. Why, thank you, Norman. Trivia for Bar Association. The story is by Barbara J. Lee and Jennifer A. Lee. Um, The rum starts a union pitch. Well, that was the one-line pitch that sold this story. Barbara and Jennifer are sisters, you see, and they were able to pitch story ideas to Rene Echeverria. According to him, they had about 18 ideas, and none of them were interesting until this very last one just pitched with that one line. So he snapped it up, and then the writing assignment went to Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf, who get the teleplay credit. They, along with others on the staff, originally felt that this could actually be a B-plot for another episode. They considered it for Rejoined or Crossfire. Uh, The more they toyed with it, though, they felt like it was strong enough to be the A-plot, and they were all pleased with the idea of letting Rom be front and center. Uh, everybody was pleased with that idea except for Rom, Max Gridenchik. Uh, he did not love the idea because Rom goes through some changes here and ends up quitting Quarks. He saw it as a way to write Rom out of the show, but he was reassured every step of the way that Rom was growing and moving on to bigger and better things. 
Another little seed planted from this episode going forward was Rom's affection for Lita and Lita's affection for Rom. I guess we'll have to see where that goes. This episode was directed by LeVar Burton. Here, LeVar truly making a name for himself as a director. He only directed two episodes of TNG, but now he's back for his third on DS9. We most recently covered his episode, The Sword of Kalos, and he will be back for seven more until he is on to Voyager and Enterprise. Oh, and by the way, that was LeVar's call to throw in a couple of Nausicans. He wanted to have a couple of heavies, and he was like, hey, I really like the way those guys looked on TNG. Can we do that makeup and get those costumes again? So that was his input into that. In this episode here, we are dealing with a union and the whole struggle between workers and management. It's interesting that at the time, and actually right up until the present, Armin Shimmerman has been a very active member of the Screen Actors Guild, serving on its board for a while, uh, heading up some of its charitable work, and being an outspoken force therein. He saw this episode as particularly special to him. Now, we do have a couple of historical references worth pointing out. Rom quotes the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, published in 1848. He says, of course, workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. And Chief O'Brien references Brian Boru, who was the king of Ireland from 1002 to 1014 AD. He was killed in battle. Or he was killed after a battle while praying. Depends on who's telling the story. Let's look at guest stars. Nice to see some returning faces here. Chase Masterson, of course, is back as Lita. We haven't seen her in a while. We also have Jeffrey Combs back as Brunt, who we first met in Family Business. Now, I love stories like this where in the entertainment business, you sometimes need people who have very specific skills. I mean, sure, there are actors who sing, actors who dance, actors who can ride a horse or whatever the role calls for. In this case, we have two Nausicans who are hired by Brunt to break up the union. They're played by James Lomas and Sean McConnell, a couple of uncredited actors doing stunt work. What makes them so special, though? Well, the production needed two actors who were also professional dart players for the dart gag, and that's just what they got here. We also meet two more Ferengi who are in Quark's employ. There's Fruel, played by Emilio Borelli, and Grimp, played by Jason Marsden. Emilio got his start in the early 90s, really bouncing around various TV guest roles. Uh, Married with Children, NYPD Blue, Just Shoot Me, and this is his only Trek appearance. Jason is an actor, though, who shows up in so many places. Commercials, feature films, TV guest roles, uh, as a voice actor... Truly, he has an incredible resume. Just a few highlights are General Hospital, The Monsters Today, in which he played Eddie. Uh, the Monsters Today, that was the one starring other Star Trek alumni, Lee Merriweather and John Shook. Uh, he was in Boy Meets World, Full House. And then the voice work that he's done is just too much to mention. He actually did have one other Trek appearance as a voice, uncredited, on TNG in the episode Silicon Avatar. Now, John, you mentioned a name, Jeffrey Combs. I understand yes. that he's somewhat of a, of a well-known figure in Star Trek. That's what I understand. 
Yes, yes. And of course, you've not seen him up until now, except for that one, you know, family business. He's just the, the guy in uh, Ferengi makeup, and then that's it. Yeah, I, technically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I loved him in Reanimator. Yes, yes. <laughs> so good. Hey, hey, ho, ho. This Ferengi contract's got to go. Hey, hey, ho, ho. It's not our fault. Profits are low. Prologue. As the Defiant returns from the Gamma Quadrant, and before disembarking, Worf consults with Dax on how to improve the Defiant's performance, making it an even finer ship. Dax can't help but twist Worf's infatuation with the Defiant into innuendo, hinting that there is an unspoken attraction burgeoning between them. Worf and the Defiant, that is. On the station, Chief O'Brien and Dr. Bashir, clad in ancient Irish warrior garb, stride through Quartz towards the Hollow Suite to take part in the Irish Battle of Clontarf. As a very irritable Quark laments the emptiness of his bar thanks to the current Bajoran month-long ritual of cleansing. Wrapped up in his own self-centeredness, Quark uncaringly dismisses Rom's seemingly immediate and acute dizziness. Rom collapses, and a frightened Lita demands Quark to do something, to which Quark retorts, I am going to do something. I'm going to dock his pay. Act 1. Dr. Bashir is examining Rom and is astonished to learn that he has been suffering from a possible life-threatening ear infection for nearly three weeks. Wondering why Rom didn't come to him sooner for treatment, Bashir is brought up to speed on the binding penalties of the standard Ferengi work contract. No sick days, no vacations, and no paid overtime. Abhorred by the exploitation of the Ferengi contract policies, Bashir plants a different kind of bug in Rom's ear, the idea of unionizing. Much to Lita's delight, Rom returns to work, but their celebration is short-lived, as Quark informs his staff that since his profit margins are at an all-time low, thanks to the Bajoran ritual of cleansing, he is cutting all salaries by a third. Either that or cut half the staff, and most likely those who still feel begrudged by his decision. Rom pleads desperately for his brother to reconsider, but his words fall on deaf ears. And for a Ferengi, that's saying something. Returning from weapons training, Dax and Worf discover a thief in the ceiling whose bag is full of stolen goods, including Worf's prized Ferengi tooth sharpener. Worf's frustration boils over as he literally throws the criminal into Odo's custody, stating a lack of security like this would never have happened on the Enterprise, to which Odo picks up a pad and recounts several incidents on the Enterprise to the contrary. He understands Worf's frustration and tells him that this is just normal life on Deep Space Nine, and it's just something Worf has to quote-unquote get used to. Later, in a clandestine meeting with Quark's staff, Rom, who usually defends his brother's decisions, declares that he and his fellow co-workers are going to fight back by forming a... Uh, a union! Act 2. Standing there, utterly stunned and in disbelief, the Ferengi workers in the crowd rebuke such heresy as they believe unionizing will be their doom when, not if, the omnipresent lobes of the Ferengi Commerce Association hears of such a plan. But Rom stands firm and convinces them that forming a union is not just a way to make change and stop their unjust treatment, but to capitalize on one of the truest Ferengi cultural principles. When a Ferengi sees an opportunity, he seizes it. Meanwhile, Dr. Bashir is removing Chief O'Brien's problematic second head. Well, a sebaceous cyst. 
as Rom bursts in thanking Dr. Bashir for his advice on unionizing his fellow co-workers. Bashir admits his advice was in jest, but the chief admires Rom for such a bold decision. The chief tells Bashir and Rom that a relative of his, Sean Elosius O'Brien, led the Pennsylvania coal miner strike on earth in 1902. He was a great union leader who towed the line for 11 months until all the miners' demands were met, yet died tragically and violently. But more importantly, he died a union man, inspiring words which Rom took to heart. Later in Ops, Worf continues to lament, quote-unquote, not getting used to his existence on Deep Space Nine. Earlier, it was simply about station crime. Now, it's just a chaos of daily maintenance problems which, much to Worf's surprise, delight the chief as it gives him a sense of purpose and belonging on Deep Space Nine. At the bar, an unstoppable object meets the irresistible force as Quark is confronted by Rom and the members of his newly formed guild of restaurant and casino employees— Glossing over Rom's union demand, Quark's maniacal laughter fades as fear sets in his eyes, watching Rom and his guild walk past him, leaving the bar and going on strike. Act 3. As the guild continues its strike, it appears that Rom has leveraged their collective gold-pressed latinum to bribe Quark's patrons from entering. Quark has his own problems struggling with a nearly empty bar and less than dependable holographic waitstaff. The question now is what will hold out longer? Quark's resolve, or Rom's latinum reserves. It seems that Odo has become an unlikely ally in this affair since he dislikes both crowds and mobs, but is under orders by Captain Sisko not to interfere with a strike as long as Rom and his union remains unobstructive and peaceful. On the upper promenade, O'Brien and Bashir are quietly observing the unobstructed entrance to Quark's bar and take great exception when Worf ventures in, ending up with an escorted trip to the brig for the three of them and a dressing down by Captain Sisko. It seems that there was an ethical difference of opinions, which led to a kerfuffle, and finally with Bashir getting thrown across a table. Sisko leaves them to cool off in the brig until the morning. Now having become Deep Space Nine's labor negotiator de facto, Captain Sisko orders Quark to resolve this strike while reminding him that the Federation still owns the lease in the bar, one that is currently hemorrhaging latinum. Like Odo before, it seems that Cisco too has a handy pad worth of sizable debts that Quark's bar owes the station, enough to pressure Quark into negotiations with Rom. As Rom sifts through an assortment of pads trying to stay organized during the strike, Quark barges in and offers Rom a settlement. Or is it a bribe? Standing firm, Rom refuses the bribe settlement and even refuses Quark's appeal to being family. It seems that Rom has learned Quark's lessons well and spits the truth back at him, that when it comes to business, they aren't brothers. They are simply employer and employee. Later at the bar, Quark is surprised at the sight of a familiar Ferengi, Brunt, correction, liquidator Brunt, who the FCA has sent, along with a few Nausicans, to oversee ending the labor strike by any means necessary. Act 4. Back in their clandestine meeting room, Rom and his union members are celebrating the steady success of their labor strike as he informs them that Quark was now desperate enough to bribe him to end it. Some Ferengi are still doubtful that Quark would so easily cave into their demands, choosing rather to cut off his Ferengi nose to spite his profit gains. Their celebration is short-lived as Brunt and his Nausicaan muscle barge into Rom's union meeting, threatening them with something far worse than violence at least far worse to a Ferengi, utter and total financial devastation. 
After Brunt leaves, Rom bolsters his people, well, except perhaps for that whimpering fruel, by citing the heroic Sean O'Brien and how he sacrificed everything for the sake of a decent wage for his co-workers. Mustering up enough courage from Rom's inspirational speech, the union workers march back to the picket lines. Meanwhile, after apologizing to Chief O'Brien about that officer's brawl, well, more of an officer's shoving match, Worf comes to terms with the controlled chaos of life on Deep Space Nine and informs the chief that he will bunk on the Defiant, providing that it won't affect his daily duties, which will leave him alone and unbothered, a situation that pleases Worf immensely. After Rom escorts Lita back to her quarters, he's flushed from Lita's affectionate kiss on his forehead, as Quark tries one last time to have Rom end the strike, because if he doesn't, the FCA, Brunt, and the Nausicans most definitely and most violently will. But Rom is tired of being manipulated and pushed around, and after spitting many of Quark's abusive words back at him, moments when Quark made him feel small and stupid, Rom proves to Quark that he isn't laying down. Even if he grants Quark's one spiteful wish to be an only child. Back at the bar, Quark tells Brunt that Rom is being stubborn and needs more time, but Brunt has come up with a new and more effective plan to make someone close to Rom an example of how serious this situation has become. Someone as close as Rom's own brother. Act 5. In sickbay, Quark, nearly beaten to death and still healing from a crushed left eye socket, a punctured lung and several broken ribs, is visited by Rom, seemingly unaffected by his brother's vicious beating, a beating meant for Rom. Quark pleads with Rom one last time to end the strike, but Rom doesn't give an inch. Quark admits that he is truly afraid of what the FCA might do next, but has a plan that might get the both of them out of the FCA's crosshairs. Quark promises to honor all of Rom's demands, including immediate wage increases, if Rom promises to publicly dissolve the union. On the Defiant, Worf is settling into his quarters as Dax stopped by with a housewarming gift, a collection of her favorite Klingon operas. Dax tells Worf that sooner or later, he will have to adapt to his new life on the station, to which he retorts that everyone else will have to adapt to him, evoking a very coy smile from Dax. At Quark's grand reopening, which fortunately coincides with the end of the Bajoran cleansing ritual, everyone is in a celebratory mood, especially Rom, who has finally quit the bar business, quit being under the familial regime of his brother, and is now a junior-grade engineer for the station, on the night shift. Rom told Quark that it was time for him to seize life, the way he wants it for himself, and to prove to his older brother that even without him, Rom will do just fine. The end. Oh, Norman, uh, this week you get two... Uh, plus two mission logs uh, for using the word kerfuffle. Oh, yeah. you like that? Yeah, yeah. There, there's not nearly enough. The... Yeah, there's not nearly enough kerfuffle in today's mm-hmm. writing. Yeah, that was in the rule book. So uh, congratulations. You Thank can you. Uh, spin those as you wish. I, I love, first of all, the jokes about Bajoran cleansing. I just, I mean, I'm sort of in Quark's camp on this. I, I don't get it either. And he says it right out. I was like, they're, they're not. They're not crazy anyway. Right. They're they're pretty pious people, somewhat, somewhat. It's like what what are they what are they giving up? Klingon cleansing, you get. Yes, right? they uh, they need a cleanse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like Nazigan cleansing, you get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bajorans, come on, you're fine. Right, you're fine. Oh, that that bit at the beginning 
with uh, the, the little fake out with Rom pouring the stuff in his ear. I, the first time I saw that, hilarious. Mm-hmm. Second time I saw that, still really funny, just because he, it looks like he's making a drink. He's mm-hmm. about to go for the mouth, and then the perfect turn to the ear. And they just go for it. The whole contents of that glass just go right in. It was a, a really well done bit. I'd love to know like how they built the basically the vessel that caught all that liquid. Yeah, it goes see, into I was his ear that too. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, a lot of it kind of runs out on his uniform, mm-hmm. but a lot of it looks like it goes right in there. And if you've oh, ever yeah. worn foam latex, it's, yeah, it's glued to your face, but there's also kind of a big pocket within there. So you do that once, and you just got a bunch of liquid between yeah. you and the mask. It's it's not good. Hopefully for Mac, that was a one take for Mac. Yes, yes. Yeah. I hope so, too. Interesting that in this episode, so many Ferengi who we haven't seen before. And and for that matter, so many employees we have not seen before at Quark's. But um, really, we've only gotten to know Quark and Rom at this point. And I, I kind of was under the impression that they were the only Ferengi on board uh, DS9. But there's there's a few of them. So that's kind of cool. I do have to say that, you know, I feel like we didn't really see yet the Lita and Bashir relationship developing. Yeah. Like, I, they, they've hinted at it before, yes, and you've had Bashir kind of do his thing, sort of obviously be interested in her. And, and sure, we can put relationship in quotes and call it whatever we want. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, hey, they're adults. But, it, you know, it, it was a little bit strange just to sort of establish, like, we've only seen Lita really like twice before. Right. Uh, before this episode. And they're just like, oh, yeah, she has this thing going on with Bashir. Like, like uh-huh. I knew he was interested, but oh, okay, I guess there's a lot of time that we have not seen her on screen. We can just make of that time whatever we want. I, it's weird because, you know, you're, you're dealing with this, uh, you know, uh, with Bashir having this entire relationship chase, you know, with, with Dax, especially mm-hmm. when he revealed her as like, you know, you love the chase, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, know, yeah. The whole honey bear thing, you know, with... Uh, our man Bashir, but uh, yeah, really, um, this one kind of caught me by surprise that they actually had some type of rapport. Yeah. To the point where you would give him a significant peck on the cheek. Right. Right. Yeah. Maybe it was the Irish medieval garb, you know, who knows? I mean, that's not sexy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Speaking of which, so here's something that bugs me and it just bugs me to no end and I don't think that I remember seeing this in the next generation where they introduced holodeck technology but why is it that that when you're going into a holosuite program you dress outside way outside the holosuites traipse through an entire bar full of people in costume to get to your program I mean isn't the holodeck powerful enough to actually craft the costume on top of you See, I would think so, too. And we we did see it a little bit in Next Gen. Like, uh, I'm sure that we saw Data walking around in his Sherlock Holmes uh, before and after going into the holodeck. But it just seems odd because, first of all, well, that stuff has to exist or you have to make it. You have to go to your replicator like... Right. Oh, okay, today make this weird, you know, 11th century Irish battle gear. Right. You know, make it my size and you got to wear it. And then what are you going to do with it afterward? Can like, I get that okay. in black? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. 
it, it is just a little strange. I mean, now it's become part of the shtick as part of the thing, but you would think that this isn't something you would just have to keep doing. I mean, it's funny. It, it adds a little bit of shock value to it. You remember when, yeah. uh, when, when Kira and Dex, when they first met Worf, they were dressed in kind of like these medieval uh, right. ladies' gowns, and it, it obviously caused a reaction that we we're supposed yes. to have. But just for the practicality, the reality of it, it just seems strange to me. Hey, I think we just found our cosplay for uh, the next convention we do. Though, I mean, oh, are you get serious? Some, get some furs and uh, <laughs> some broadswords. Hey, I'll tell set. you. I'll tell you what. I will cut my hand right now with a dirty Klingon dagger if you do, <laughs> and and blood bond to you. For you that. got. Hey, look. I, I'm thinking it's either that or the World War One flying ace uh, outfits. Those are pretty good too. Oh, those are sexy, though. right? And there's right? nothing better than wearing a completely wool lined leather jacket. In August, in, in Vegas. Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> planning ahead, planning ahead. If that happens. Uh, I right. love it. Yeah. I, all right, let's talk uh, delicately about that reference to Umox. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. come on. Come on. So we all know what Umox is. We all know what Umox is a stand-in for. And yeah. we all know that Ferengi are basically wearing their erogenous zones on their heads. That line about uh, Rom having loads of Umox by himself, that just sort of came out of nowhere for me. <laughs> Which I, yeah. I I was surprised. I was I, I thought it was funny, uh, but I was just like, "Wow, Star Trek just went there. Good for you, but wow, you just went there." And I think that that's uh, like there was kind of science fiction at the time, you know, especially kind of like with embracing like different vulgarities and what you can get away with on screen and what get what, what we get past the censors. And the nineties yeah, yeah. was rife with. You know, uh, vulgarity like Frel, you know, for uh-huh. Farscape or fracking for Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, or even just Chinese for Firefly. So yeah, just right. pushing the envelope like this, everyone kind of like knows like the, I was going to tug on my ear, but you don't know what that means in Ferengi. It's yeah. tug on my ear, <laughs> wink, wink. But the, the, the part that sells it for me and the part that really made me fall in love with Max's performance at the very beginning was just kind of like when he kind of pushed his head forward yeah oh with yeah that, with that puppy dog look like huh? right you know said enough to do something about it right right <laughs> well because well, okay because here's the thing what you're pointing out is this interesting thing about the Ferengi it's like they they do sort of just live out loud and, and this this sensual life that they have they they just they they let it all hang out they talk about umox to whoever will listen to them you know sure. at the same time there is this innocence to Max, uh, to Rom, and Max's performance as Rom. There's an innocence to the way he delivers lines like that, too. Yeah. So he can kind of uh, not make it sound completely uh, disgusting. <laughs> I'm sure that he and Chase had great fun, like yes. trying, just trying different ways to, to, to sell that scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. completely. You know, I, I mentioned this in The Sons of Moog. And I mentioned how much I loved Dax's combat training uniform. It was very smart, and it had that slash of silver yeah, uh, or a slash right. of gray. Did right. you notice 
that when she and Worf were walking towards Worf's quarters and they found that criminal, she was mm-hmm. wearing the exact same outfit with a slash that was going in one direction, but yes. the, the male version of that, Worf's version of that, was going the other direction. Yes. Yeah. That was, it, it was cool. It was a bit symmetrical. I, I still love that uniform. Yeah. I, I that's, I, yeah. that's kind of like a deep cut cosplay kind of yeah, thing for me. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, the other things that we love, or at least that I loved, uh, the scene between Cisco and Quark. Oh, loved it. Lo- love Cisco just cornering Quark. <laughs> you know, I mean, still, there is a question like, what would the Federation do with all that latinum and back rent? Like, what does the Federation go buy with it? I don't know, make a trade deal for oh, something John, else, the I guess. money question again. <laughs> I, promise I, uh. I promise I won't. I promise I won't. And uh, nice references to TNG plot lines when Odo points out security issues on the Enterprise. I thought that was very cool. Just kind of a subtle thing. You know, oh, oh, right, that was Rascals. Oh, right, that was, uh, oh, the one with Rasmussen time with Max Headroom. We all remember that one, but of I, course. As, as much as I dig that, though, it was kind of like, so Worf says, you know, nothing like this would ever happen on the Enterprise. Oh, really? Because I have a pad right here at the ready. Yeah. <laughs> ready know, to dispute right? anything that you would possibly say about it. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know that that was a little, yeah. Uh, a matter of time, by the way, being the name of the episode. But um, yeah, that was a little too on the nose that he's just got it right there. Unless he he's just been he, waiting for that moment. He, he's like had that pad on his desk for weeks. Right. He's like, oh, I'm going to just wait for the right moment when I can totally nail Quark, uh, uh, Worf with this. But that's what kills me about kind of like the, the abuse of pad um, uh, <laughs> props yes, in Deep Space yes. Nine. Because why is it that a pad just has a singular use? I know. I know. Right? I've, I've got a tablet. I've got a pad. It literally just does everything. And I just need one. Just the one. That's it. My yeah. thing was, is that I, I kind of like gave it a little bit of a pass. But then at the end of this episode, Dax walks into Worf's quarters on the Defiant and she holds up this basically this thin piece of paper. It was almost kind of like an isolinear chip. Yeah. Right. And she goes, here's my entire collection of Klingon opera. My entire collection. <laughs> right. But yeah. the three articles that, that, that Odo brings up to Worf, only fits on one pad on one pad right yeah well it's a very heavy multimedia there i don't yeah, know just, yeah i don't know it's just it's just kind of like a weird convolution of technology i know That's... that i'm completely nitpicking but yeah I no it is it's a good point <laughs> hey uh let, let's talk uh very favorably about uh, who we mentioned in the trivia jeffrey combs i'm a fan you're a fan mm-hmm. i love him no matter what he's in uh but i i obviously like him here as brunt he just he is one of those actors who can find every nuance to every line and even like that scene where he's describing what he would do to those unionizers if they were back on Ferenginar. Yeah. He, he it is horrific and it's hilarious and he nails both of those things in that shot. But also if there was that creepy moment where he's he's being super threatening and everyone's terrified and then all of a sudden he looks like like Lita. Yeah. And then there's just kind of like this, this almost like this ocular salivation that happens. She's like, right. Oh. But only yeah. in the way that he can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Right? He's amazing like that. True and, talent. Yeah. 
And, and I mean, for that matter, just all, all the little details that we got. I love when they dole out little things about Ferengi culture along the way. So like the idea when um, uh, Ram is in the infirmary at the beginning and Bashir is talking about uh, in the afterlife, you know, you would be in the Ferengi afterlife, you know, bidding on your next life. I just I, I love because you can picture it. You can absolutely picture. Of course, this is what the Ferengi believe happens after you die. You literally yeah. have to bid on your next life. In the Grand Treasury, correct? Yes, in the Grand Treasury. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> this scene caught me by surprise, total surprise. So when, when Quark returned to Brunt to tell him that Rom was being defiant, yeah. behind the scenes, I was laughing hysterically at the two Nausikans <laughs> using each other as dartboards. That was genius. Whoever's decision that was, was genius. They're they're staged perfectly, just like or right in the background. Mm-hmm. And then I love that even when the camera moves away, you still hear them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like they're still just <laughs> what a couple of idiots just throwing darts at each other. It was Such, brilliant. It, it was is brilliant. gold, total and, gold. And the or only Latin thing that gold. the only thing that probably would have made that better is like later on when everyone was reconciled. If, if say, the Chief and uh, Julian were having a game of darts with the Nausikans on the Nausikans. (laughs) (laughs) Even better. We're not gonna take it. No, we ain't gonna take it. We're not gonna take it. Wait, are those Nausikans? We'll get back to Bar Association in a moment. But first, a word from ExpressVPN, giving you back your internet privacy. Hey, are you working from home now? Or at least more often than you used to be? And you're probably managing all of your personal data online at the same time, too. You know, I know that I'm in that situation, and I know that the security and privacy of what I do online is that much more important to me as I navigate home and business obligations online. So what I love about ExpressVPN is that I can have that running on all of my devices all at the same time and know that I am securely working from home, protecting my privacy and hiding my identity online. Now, there are other great benefits to ExpressVPN as well. There's the ease of setup, which I've talked about, uh, simply hitting a button once I've logged in to say that I'm connected. There's the speed, which is absolutely fantastic in all of my devices. And another kind of little known benefit, which is you can change your location, which uh, might allow you to catch uh, news or other content online from around the world or protect your identity from around the world as you see fit. So... Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. And look, whether I'm headed out or I'm working from home, ExpressVPN protects my connections. And it does so at speeds that impress me every time. I like that you brought up the fact that a lot of people are working from home because I have heard stories about people that are having their internet connections identified by... Wi-Fi hotspots yeah, and people that are roaming the streets. All day long, I'm on conference calls, video calls. I'm connected to the internet, uploading files, downloading files. I'm doing so much more of that than I ever have before. Mm -hmm. And just knowing that I can do so behind this wall of protection is a huge burden off my mind. 
So protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mission log for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. And a big thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's show. So Norman, I, I want to pose a question to you, to us, <laughs> to our listeners for this segment. Um, is it a little weird that Star Trek is essentially just doing a straight-up pro-union episode here? I, I mean, so we all know Star Trek has this long history of social and political commentary, and, and I, I will make that argument all day, every day to anybody who asks. Um, I, I think it is uh, a misnomer to think that Star Trek specifically, or really any art, exists in a vacuum where where it is unaware of social and political concerns. But that is that is absolutely baked into the DNA of Star Trek, mm -hmm. is examining big issues and making some interesting and sometimes very important stands about those issues. Um, there are a few times in the past where we've talked about episodes that really land at a point of advocacy. You know, go back to TOS and you look at something like Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Uh, you go into Next Gen and you look at an episode like The Outcast, um, where they're really just reaching through the TV and saying, this is an issue that is important. Stop being stupid about it. This is how we get to be progressive humans who make it to the 23rd century. All that said, there's something about this in particular being about union and labor struggle that is so specific that it, I, I don't think it's inappropriate for Star Trek to handle it. I think Star Trek should handle any and all kinds of issues. It sort of, it caught me off guard though. It mm -hmm. really did. Because I usually think about Star Trek as dealing with things that are a little more vague and a little more uh, almost like emotionally centered. Like we're talking about a, 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 you know, an ethical or moral issue sort of written large, not to say that labor is not a big and important issue, but there was something about it that maybe it just fell out of step because we've really never dealt with it before, you know, in the hundreds of hours of Star Trek that have come before, uh, before this point in DS9, you go back to TOS and Next Gen, we just sort of assume, well, everybody in this century, 23rd century, 24th century, everybody has their place, everybody has a job, everybody's satisfied with what they do. We talked about it a little bit when we were in uh, Homefront and Paradise Lost. Well, here's Ben Sisko. He's happy. He owns a restaurant in New Orleans. And guess what? The people who work for him, they must be happy too. Even mm -hmm. if their job is to Joe Cisco, uh, oh Joe Cisco, yeah, 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 yeah. Even if their job is to you know clean the toilets, to sweep the floors, well, everybody is happy with what they're doing because that is the world that we have. And now this comes at us kind of from left field. And granted, it's not a Starfleet issue, it's not a Federation issue, but it's happening 
on is happening uh, under the noses of Starfleet uh, because you've got Cisco there running that station. Um, and obviously we have this little uh, overlap because of the issue of the rent, <laughs> which I still <laughs> yeah. think is funny. But um, I, I'm just curious if if this surprised you the way it did me and was it surprising to you that here's Star Trek basically making a statement saying like, hey, you know what? Unions are good things. Too bad we can't have a union here, but at least we were able to find a compromise between management and workers that's sort of like having our cake and eating it too. You know, it brings up a really interesting uh, group of different points because at first I always thought that this episode was about what you were talking about, the unionization and the policies of unionization and the exploitation of workers in the 24th century. That's what I thought this would, this episode was about. Hmm. And, and, and to many degrees, it is up to a point because it does deal with that very, you know, uh, at the very forefront of the episode where, where Rom is suffering from this ear infection that he can't take off work for Mm -hmm. because the Ferengi cultural policy doesn't allow him to do that. Okay. So we're dealing with something very specific, very timely actually Mm -hmm. right now, just in terms of the way that, uh, workers of the world are being treated or Mm -hmm. mistreated, uh, for that fact. And, um, you know what, John, here's the funny thing. If we did this show, say five years ago, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be as in sync as it is now with what's happening in current mm. times. You know, there's, there's obviously, there's a lot of, you know, uh, distress and unrest that's going on with the, uh, the labor population across the world. But I always found it interesting that Star Trek never tackled this particular issue because yes, we understand that the Federation provides for the Federation up to a point. Yeah. Up to a point. But what of the other cultures, like the the Ferengi culture? The Ferengi culture has very strict guidelines and contracts of how they treat their workers. And I found it funny that the two people that really kind of incited the the impetus for Rom to take his stance were two Federation officers. Yeah. Right? Yeah, for real. Is that a little bit of uh, uh, too much trying to influence an alien culture in, in a know. way. I mean, but to think of, uh, at first it was Bashir who was kind of aloofly stating that you, you know, you know, if you're getting so mistreated, you should form a union. Mm-hmm. But Rom took that to heart because I think that at, at, at a certain point he was trying to find a way to make things better, not just for him, but for the people that worked, worked with him as coworkers. Yeah. But oh, then yeah. I, I think when it really settled in was when Bashir, not Bashir, but uh, O'Brien, told him about his ancestor about uh sean o'brien the mm-hmm. uh the you know the the, the uh, union worker who uh risked yeah. everything for, you know, for his his fellow co-workers right yeah but the reason why i bring up o'brien is because o'brien's the blue collar guy mm-hmm. right he comes mm-hmm. from a line of blue collar families you know people that you know he's not a non he's a he's not an officer he's a non-com officer he's the guy that says you know what Fight for the people, fight for their rights, fight for what is right, mm-hmm. right? And I think that got to Rom more than I think that O'Brien intended it to. So mm-hmm. um, I, I know I'm digressing, but 
you know, I, I found it just fascinating in this episode that it turned from workers' rights to brothers' rights hmm. almost halfway through the episode. I'm not sure if you saw that, but that's how I felt about it. Uh, meaning, well, so uh, brothers' rights, meaning uh, Quark has a has a right and an access to Rom that uh, that the others don't simply because they are brothers. I mean, Quark does try to have it both ways and say mm -hmm. like, okay, well, I can talk to you as my relative, but when it's convenient, I'm going to talk to you as my employee. I think he's trying to have it both ways. And I think yeah, that Quark yeah. is, is really smart about trying to like riding that line. But that's where the beauty of this episode really comes into play because it's finally when Rom just says, nope, no, I'm, I'm done with that. I'm done with being under the thumb of your FCA, of your fear of that, of mm -hmm. you abusing me. Uh, I, I, I found that Rom really kind of like took the avatar of the, the tiny elephant that's, that's held in place by the chain, you know, in a circus as he grows up, he becomes the larger elephant that can only be held in by a twine because he's mentally chained mm -hmm. to his existence. Mm -hmm. He's mentally chained to his existence. And that's what Rom has been under Quark. Quark yeah. has never let him be the, the person that he wanted to be, right? Because oh, yeah. he wanted to either exploit his talents or exploit his loyalty or exploit his, his familial relationship. So, like I said, it, at the start, it felt like it was a workers' rights episode. But as the story developed, it became more of Rom's rights as an individual episode. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I think it's interesting, though, that this is probably, I, well, it has to be the exception rather than the rule. You know, I, I imagine that most Ferengi who do business and probably on Ferengan are, you know, they, like Rom says, well, they all have the same contract. The labor contracts are identical for everybody. Right. And we all hope to be, oh, we all hope, hope to be the exploiters one day, to which Bashir says, yeah, you, you probably won't. doesn't look like you're exploiting anyone. Mm -hmm. um, right. and, and he's right. And there are probably a lot of Ferengi who go through their lives thinking like, oh, yeah, well, I, I have this terrible contract. But but one day, boy, all I have to do is just work hard enough, long enough, and one day I'll be able to exploit someone else. Can't imagine that that day comes often for most Ferengi. But most Ferengi are also probably not in a position that they have opportunity the way that Rom does. You know, they're in this very unique situation where they are far away from Ferenginar, far away from uh, the rules that are there. They're trying the best they can to stick to those rules while they're on DS9. But they're also hit with all this cultural and social and political influence from everybody else who comes through the bar and just the sheer fact that they're on a Bajoran station that is being managed by Starfleet yeah. <laughs> at this point. Yeah. I th well, I think that that's the thing is like there's like uh, this in huge like infusion of different cultural wants and needs and desires and influences that allows them to see that there's something better than the station that I've been kind of um, ultimately destined towards based on our culture. I mean, we're talking about the Ferengi cultural contract. It is a work contract, mm -hmm. but it is their culture. Yeah, that's that's right. the issue here. And that's something that 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 Quark brings up to Cisco is like, you know, you can't interfere in our culture, 
This is what yeah. we do. This is who we are. And, and you're Starfleet. You're supposed to be accepting of that. Now, of course, you know, you know, Cisco says, well, we, we kind of still own the lease in the bar and you owe us a lot of money. Yeah. You know, so yeah. uh, if you want to stick to your culture, you're going to stick to the fact that you owe us money. You know, yeah. but uh, there's an interesting thing here, um, specifically with, let's, I mean, starting with the, the healthcare issue, because look at the way that, that ROM kind of illustrates this point and how it's mm-hmm. relative to today. So let's take a look at ROM's employment contract under the FCA, under the Ferengi Commerce Alliance. His contract, cultural contract, says that he is prohibited from taking any unapproved sick time and unapproved vacation time or basically anything that removes him from working all the mm-hmm. time every day and he has to it's it's kind of like today it's like you know some people are are stuck but choosing the lesser between two evils you know it's either you work while you're sick or you when you're putting other people at risk because you need to work or yeah. you don't receive a paycheck that will help you pay for the health benefits that you don't have right right <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, seriously, it, it starts out with a healthcare problem. This whole thing starts out because of a healthcare issue. And, and we, we cannot turn a blind eye to that. <laughs> you know, that is front and center in this episode. Mm-hmm. I, I feel terrible for Ram, and I've been there myself, where it's like, oh, God, do I just have to push myself a little bit longer because I can't look bad in front of the boss. I can't risk losing my job because I miss a day. But by being there that day, I put myself and everybody at risk for something much worse. Um, and we we see that. I mean, yeah, we, we kind of play around with the idea of when we're recording this episode, but we're recording this in early April of 2020. And right now, there are a lot of people who are losing their jobs because of a health scare, a health problem. And those people then lose their health coverage and their health care which merely compounds the same issue to be without health care during a time that there is a health crisis. At least, you know, this is coming from a couple of people who are recording the United States. It's a different situation in other countries, but that is a singularly gigantic problem here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the, the one thing that struck me uh, very identifiable and early at most was this health care issue and the fact that, even in the 24th century, there still is kind of like an, an aspect of that culture on this station that's run by the Federation, where in, in uh, several cultures, you know, you had Ferengi, you had Bajoran, I'm probably sure you had a couple other alien cultures in there that were suffering under the regime of these two, uh, these two opposing forces. Either you can either be sick and work or you can be unemployed and not afford your health care. Yeah. In the 24th century. Yeah. Like that's... Yeah. You know, I mean, that's like, you know, with, you know, looking at Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future, that's supposed to have been gone. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Which is I mean, why it's surprising it, it, in this, you know, being seen in a Star Trek episode. Sure, sure, sure. And, and again, there might be something baked into the culture of the Ferengi where they just don't go to doctors anyway. But I, look, I, I look at healthcare in the 24th century and you look at what Dr. Crusher can do. You look at what Dr. Bashir can do. And I'm like... I'd stop by every couple of weeks, <laughs> even yeah. even if I'm feeling great. I was like, you know what? Your technology is amazing. You can catch something early. Let just uh, you know, run a tricorder over me. Tell me how I'm doing. Cool. Right. See yeah. you again. <laughs> you know, but uh, not not all the Ferengi have this uh, uh, option available to them. Clearly. So let's take a look at 
another interesting aspect of this episode. And I think it's something that didn't strike me at first, but after watching a certain series, mm-hmm. uh, or even watching a series previous to this, Star Trek The Next Generation, and, and, and accessing the, uh, the ideals and the issues of measure of a man, mm-hmm. if, if Quark has the ability to create emergency hologram servers or yes. what I would like to call hollow scabs. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. So why does he have employees? Yeah. Like if if he would be better off just firing everybody, yeah. not having to pay them wages, not having to pay them sick leave if they ever got it, not having to pay them benefits, just take all of that money and pour it into upgrading your technology and creating holographic waiters or servers yeah. or Dabo yeah. girls. Yeah. Why you wouldn't do you do once. that? Yeah. Right. Why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. No, that that's a really good question. I thought they, like, it was funny the way they played it off, but it was also a little too convenient the way they played it off. Oh, they just don't work. Well, they don't. Because we've seen holodeck characters do some pretty amazing things, like uh, serve like, Dr. Pulaski tea and crumpets. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so, or Moriarty walking outside of the holodeck, right, right and taking yeah. over the Enterprise. I mean, exactly. It, it's not unseen in Star Trek. So when they introduce ideas like that into a show, I'm like, that's a very dangerous concept because now you're actually admitting that it can be done. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. if it can be done, then. Why aren't you doing it? Because it'd be a heck of a lot cheaper. You wouldn't have to deal with the issues of being an employer. And you could literally fire people at will and reprogram them to do exactly what you want, how you want, when you want it. And you can make your double girls look exactly the way your customers want them to look. Yeah. Well, look, uh, uh, the, the high-minded part of me says, well, they wouldn't do that because there is something so ineffable and important about having that genuine human-to-human or human-to-alien contact that is simply irreplaceable by a holodeck. The other part of me says, well, if the Federation is charging for space and power, uh, then the power bill goes way up when you have to run holograms all the time out in the open, not just in that little hollow suite. So yeah. I, I'd probably go with that answer as, uh, as at least the answer that satisfies why Quark would rather have real people there instead of holograms. But your point is well taken. I in, mean, in my opinion, I think that he would rather have real people there because it gives him literally a position of power over people. Yeah. You, yeah, you sure. can't hurt a hologram's feelings. You, know, mm. you can't make them feel that they have. That you know they, of. That you know of. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yet. Don't jump Yet. the timeline. But, <laughs> you know, but at least in this case, though, like the reason why Quark and some employers, you know, they they are who they are is because they like having people beholding to them. They like mm-hmm. that power. They like that authority. It's it, what drives their day. There's, you know, there there are people that are entrepreneurs that are entrepreneurs because they love being able to be adored by their employees or have control over their employees. And you can't have that with a hologram because they will always say yes. You program them to say yes, and they will say yes, right? Or you'll yeah. raise them and you replace them with a program that says yes. <laughs> yeah. And at that point, why doesn't just everybody have all the holograms they need? Soon enough. We're just not there yet, John. 
You know, the interesting thing also is that I always thought that this episode on the surface was about what we're talking about, about the abused labor force in mm-hmm. the 24th century. But I did make uh, a little bit of a, a comment of, I, it was, for me, it was more of several smaller transformative stories wrapped up in this larger narrative of this political uh, ideal. And, and mm-hmm. I think that if you really look at it, or, or you may disagree, but there are the small stories of Rom coming into his own Mm-hmm. And Worf kind of like settling into his own mm-hmm. at the same time. And they're all kind of like part and parcel of like self-negotiation. Rom is negotiating with himself to be a better version of Rom, to finally take ownership of who he is. And Worf is kind of doing the same thing. Worf is doing it. It's like, you know what? He's been struggling with, why am I here? What am I doing? The station is terrible. The Enterprise is better why am I not on the Enterprise? But there are pockets of, of promise that I see. Maybe it's not me. Maybe it's everybody else. Right? <laughs> you think that's growth? <laughs> well, I think, that, I think it's the opposite of growth. But uh, Dax says you're going to have to get used to life on the station. And Worf, uh, Worf says, perhaps in the end it will be all of you who have to adapt to me. <laughs> I, I mean, that's so I, I'm, I'm just going to take my toys and go somewhere else. Uh, now, part of me, I get the idea, like there's something appealing about uh, uh, about just leaving it all and going to live on a boat. Sure, you get out of here and, and you, you, you sort of have a little more uh, control over what's immediately around you. But I, at a certain point, uh, I think I in particular, I would go nuts with that. Um, and I think Worf, Yes, he's saying that because he's not used to this, but Worf is also used to the structure of people. He's used to the people around him to give him direction and meaning and advice and and vibrance to his life. I think he's I think he's he's just in a mood. I think this is pouty Worf. I think <laughs> all, this is all a... he needs all he needs is a good chat with his son to bring him back. Yeah, like that'll happen. <laughs> Father of the year. That's not Worf. <laughs> now, what I was saying about the growth part is that I think it takes, um, I think it takes a certain amount of self-awareness to know that something isn't working. And yeah, instead okay. of trying to, True. you know, and, and instead of trying to butt heads with the system, try and remove yourself from the system, see what is working and then kind of like reinsert yourself because it's not like he's isolating himself in total. He just needs to get away from, well, to be fair to Worf and to be fair to kind of like what happened at the very beginning of season four, Worf just gets kind of like chucked in there. Just like, hey, like like Cisco says, in order to fight Klingons, we need a Klingon that can fight for us or something to that degree. Mm-hmm. I'm paraphrasing. Bring in Worf. Why not? No yeah. one asked Worf. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and he's been in a constant state of flux since. I mean, at that in those two part episodes, in that one two part episode, I should say, mm-hmm. Worf is just like this I don't know, man. It's like this isn't me. I'm like I'm I'm a man without a ship. I'm a man yeah. without a crew. I'm a man without my forward leadership. So who am I? Yeah. You know, like what am I supposed to do? And ever since then, he's been fighting the system on the station. And everyone's well, just like, ah, deal with it, deal with it, deal with it. And he's like, no, I won't deal with it. You keep telling me to, but I won't. I don't think you guys are being fair to my needs. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, that, that, no, I mean, look, that, that's a good point. I, I think he's he's being a bit pouty right now, but at the same token, 
they've been somewhat accepting of him, but they also dismiss what he's saying. Just, uh, you know, oh, yeah, you, you'll get used to it. it. It'll work out. It'll be fine. And and I, I, I get the impulse to just, you know, take your sleeping bag and leave and go, you know, set up a tent in the backyard. So I'm just not going <laughs> to I'm not going to deal with you people anymore. But at the same time, and I don't necessarily know where all it's going at the same time. I think he needs all of these people and he needs that structure around him. So we'll, we'll see where he lands. Well, I mean, I don't disagree. It's just that he was thrown way into the deep end. Yeah. So early, so quickly expected to perform at peak performance and going back to the whole employer employee dynamic. That's really hard when you're taking like when somebody with a very specific skill set is taken out of that, thrown into a different department and expected to immediately return to their peak performance. And sometimes it's up to the employee to say like, Hey, you know what? I know what you guys are trying to do. Let me figure it out. But as of right now, you're not going to get my best because you're expecting something I'm not comfortable delivering. Mm -hmm. I will just give me a moment to figure it out. And I think that's what's happening when he goes on the defiant. Forget it. I'm staying right where I am. It's gonna take you and station security and the Nausikans and the Ferengi Commerce Authority to get me out of here. I'm waiting for Bron to come and take me home and I ain't gonna budge till he gets here. association we made it to the end without a major labor dispute although i don't know we we haven't had our executive producer on the line in a little while so maybe i <laughs> should save that we'll see uh but norman at the end of the day this episode bar association of course we'll get into the morals meanings messages and seeing what makes tick but does the episode hold up does the production how does it hold up for you i really enjoy this episode quite a bit because i think that there's a, a far greater message that is being said here than what I originally thought this episode was going to convey. And I really, really enjoy the byplay between Rom and Cork in this episode because I have an older brother. Because I have an older mm-hmm. brother that I'm not gonna I'm not saying that my older brother <laughs> is Quark. You know, but, <laughs> um, but what I am saying is that my older brother has looked out for me with that kind of tough love that Quark is showing towards Rom. It's not that he doesn't think that Rom's, his quest to create this union and to fight for workers' rights is necessarily wrong. It's just that every single time that he challenges Rom, Rom proves to him with the exact same amount of zeal that I'm doing the right thing, that I've learned, that I have grown up, that I have become an independent person, and you have to respect that. And you have to deal with the fact that at a certain point in time, I am going to leave you. And you're going to have to deal with your life on your own because you're no longer going to have me to be your whipping post. And I'm sorry, that's the way that it's going to be for wrong. Right. Yeah. And that's something that in the storyline I never expected from something that started off with I have an ear infection, but I can't take off work because I won't get paid because my contract is terrible. Yeah. 
Right. So that's why this episode holds up for me because it caught me completely by surprise. And at the end, it really was a story about the the sibling rivalry between these two Ferengi brothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I agree. It, it this episode does very well what is hard to do for many other episodes, which is it, it's got this line skirted between comedic moments and dramatic moments between the, the the sort of political story going on versus the personal story that's going on. And it, it does all of those things very nicely. They're all very well balanced. My interest was never lost in watching this. It all plays out very well. And even the B plot, I, I think it's thin, but it's still good. And it's good because Worf is an interesting character and um, we're all interested in seeing how he acclimates to what's happening there. I feel like if this episode had come too early in the run of DS9, we might have felt differently. Mm-hmm. But where this lands, we've had some time with Quark and Rom. And this is a, a really excellent way to extend those characters and explore a bit more with them. And I just love the growth that we get out of Rom. Do we get growth out of Quark? Well, maybe. Maybe. You know, he he's pretty awful (laughs) through most of it and you could look at his compromise as self-serving but that compromise also benefits the people who are working for him and they're all happier at the end so a little bit of a win-win all around there yeah i just think it's it's done well and it's directed well too lavar burton got a lot of good moments out of his cast and he also did a lot of really smart things as a director like putting those Nausicans in the background, not mm-hmm. overplaying the joke. And then that fantastic crane shot coming up from the lower deck of the promenade to the upper deck and then following O'Brien as he has a conference. So like, those are just really technically well-executed moments in this episode, in an episode that is already well-written and already kind of firing on all cylinders. Uh, what about messages? I, I, I think you, you hit some already, but uh, are there more there that we should talk about? Well, there's one thing that actually does does kind of mug me a little bit. It's a small criticism of the episode, but it's very much kind of like in the vein of Star Trek where you have almost a little bit too clean of a resolution. Yeah, yeah. Right when kind of like the gravitas of the episode is taking hold. It's basically when when Quark is laid up in sickbay and his face is just trashed, his body has been beaten. And he negotiates with Rom that he's supposed to do the things like, if you do this, if you do this, I'll honor all of your, all of your needs, all the union wants and, and all of your demands. And then all of a sudden, whoosh, yeah. reopening and everyone's happy. And right. what happened to Brunt? What happened to the Noskins? You know, what happened to that part of the, of the threat of the story? Because I really wanted to see Brunt again and, and how Quark and Rom work together to, to basically uh, overcome that insurmountable odd yeah odds yep odd odds odds uh, odds insurmountable odds yes <laughs> yeah but i mean you know what i mean it's just yeah, like all yeah. of a sudden they said okay everything is hunky dory and then now major kira is ordering double of everything hold the conversation right <laughs> right <laughs> yeah 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 i i see that as a little bit of a uh, little bit of a problem there a little too clean but you know, they they gave us a story with a happy ending, uh, so that's that that's fine. They they they're allowed to do that from time to time. 
you know, messages for me, I, I think some of them are just very clear cut. Don't come to work if you're sick. Especially now. Especially now. Treat your employees with respect. Yes. Treat your boss with respect, too, when it's deserved. <laughs> you know? And what what are we looking at here? Blood is thicker than latinum? I mean, they can play off this thing as we're business partners or we are employee-employer, but we're also brothers. You know, ultimately, at the end of the day, all of that stuff is simply trumped by the respect that is shown in that relationship, whether it's respect shown to the brother or respect shown to the employer or employee. And, you know, I think this episode is about compromise, uh, that you can compromise, you can reach compromise if you try. That certainly goes for Quark and Rom. Look, it sort of goes for Worf, uh, although his version of compromise, I think, is very interesting right now. Like, his arc is... His arc in this episode is fine, but again, I feel like they left us hanging a little bit. How long can this actually go on? I guess we will see. Well, I think that they're trying to just develop this kind of tit-for-tat kind of cat and mouse relationship with he and Dax. Yes. You know, so I find, and nobody smiles the coy smile the way that (laughs) she smiles that coy smile. That's very true. Um, But I like what you said about blood is thicker than latinum because, first of all, latinum in its liquid state is probably pretty thick before it gets pressed into gold. Sure. But, um, you know, one of the things that was really important to me, again, being having an older brother is the theme of the slighted older brother. You know, like many similar stories uh, in in many different fandoms and many different uh, narratives, there is the theme of this slighted older brother who has always kept – uh, the younger sibling or siblings, he or her, from reaching their fullest potential. Because there's always this this responsibility that the older brother has. And this older brother always knows that this younger sibling will be the one who will leave the farm, who will leave the family business, who will leave the city, who will leave their neighborhood for that better life, the greater potential of their own life. But it's always the older brother or the older sibling that's stuck mining the farm, Mm. mining the parents, Mm -hmm. mining the village, right? Right. And they're always a little resentful when that younger sibling grows and blossoms and becomes better than they ever could expect for themselves. Because the eldest, that older sibling never had that choice. Never. Yeah. You know, they were always burdened with responsibility. That's how I see Quark and Rom in this episode. Quark was always burdened with the responsibility of being successful in the Ferengi culture. And Rom, with Quark knowing how brilliant he is, how intelligent he is, needs to keep him in check. Because once Rom understands that, as he does in this episode, Rom becomes independent and Quark loses control over his family i.e. losing control over himself. Yeah. Well said. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Mission Log is part of the Roddenberry Podcast Network. You can visit us at podcast.roddenberry.com. Enjoy our entire family of podcast entertainment, including Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, 
and Shabam. Shabam! If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, a session. Do you hear the people sing, singing the song of wages lost? It is a music of Ferengi who will not be bought at cost. When the beating in your heart sounds like the loss of Latinum, it is the quark about to cave as new contracts come. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.